Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The following show, recorded for the Bowery Boys Movie Club in July of 2020, explores the New York City history behind the 1989 Spike Lee classic, Do the Right Thing. The Bowery Boys Movie Club is a special podcast that we make just for those people who follow us on Patreon. And we are so excited to today be releasing our newest Bowery Boys Movie Club on In the Heights. The brand new film adaptation of the Lin-Manuel Miranda musical of the same name. In Washington Heights! Greg, now in movie theaters, remember those? And streaming on HBO Max. If you're a patron, head over to Patreon to download this latest episode. And enjoy! The Bowery Boys Movie Club presents Rosie Perez, Danny Aiello, and Spike Lee in... Do the right thing. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys Movie Club. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. It is summer in the city. It is sizzling. The, you know, the sidewalks are filled with melting gum just ready to stick to your shoe. So we thought that we would do a summertime movie here. And... Uh, There is no film more relevant right now than Spike Lee's 1989 film classic, Do the Right Thing, which was written and directed by Spike Lee and was originally released on July 21st of 1989. This is a movie that is packed with amazing performances by amazing actors. Yep, just young people like starting off in their career who would then become some of the finest actors in Hollywood. I mean, not to mention, of course, a few older established stars that also pop in as well. This is really an ensemble piece. Spike Lee introduces character after character, and then we kind of stand back and we watch them all go through the same day together. And And it's quite an extraordinary day. (laughs) Yeah, it's all in one day, and it's all essentially on one block on one street in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. So that's actually a pretty good description, uh, an initial description of what happens in the movie, because it is kind of bottled up in one place in time, although it reflects a lot of things that are happening in the real world. The movie takes place in the neighborhood of Bed-Stuy, Bedford-Stuyvesant, in the borough of Brooklyn, and a place that has been a prominent African-American neighborhood since the 1930s. Could you give us like a one-sentence of synopsis of the action in the movie? Yeah, well, so the action is, you know, we're watching the block, both sides of this block, in fact, the characters who live on this block play out one very hot summer day where the temperature is sizzling, tensions are simmering, there's just a, an undercurrent of racial tension that is building from morning until really it just sort of explodes at the end of the day and at the end of the night for a climax that is quite violent and very eerily relevant to situations today. It's a microcosm of what's happening in New York in the 1980s, but as you mentioned, it is extremely relevant today. And Tom, I'm actually glad that we're getting to finally do a Spike Lee film on the show. This is the first the first Spike Lee film on the Bowery Boys Movie Club. 
We're finally doing the right thing, Greg. Now, Lee, would you agree with me, Tom? Lee, side by side with Scorsese, Martin Scorsese, are these directors that tune into history in a very unique way, and New York City history in their movies. Uh, Spike Lee, for instance, has focused on historical subjects like the D- Defy Bloods, which is about Vietnam and and the 1960s, and you have Black Klansmen, his movie Malcolm X, mm-hmm. of course. And then my favorite, I wonder if you've ever seen this movie, Tom, Summer of Sam, which came out in 1999. Did you ever see that? I haven't seen that. It's interesting. It's not a perfect movie, but it's about the son of Sam Killer, but also how what New York was like. It's a it's an interesting microcosm movie and the, and one that people should check out. But that was in 1999 that Son of Sam came out. Yeah. Uh huh. So, but unlike that film, then here, Do the Right Thing came out in 1989 and is about life in 1989. It was set in the present time. That I mean, that is true, and obviously, many, if not even perhaps most of his films are about contemporary life, and of course, many of those films are about the black experience in America. But what this film does, uh, on top of speaking of that present moment, he always manages, and at least in some of his best movies, to bring in like historical elements or references, occasionally with a sledgehammer. Some critics have pointed out, but in in my opinion, that's why a lot of these movies hold up, because they're kind of tethered to the present and tethered to the past and to references that we know, of course, like looking back at them. Of course, in this movie, those references are Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, but also, as we'll get to it, a lot of specific incidents that happened in New York City. Yeah, because he's just going there and depicting police violence against the African-American communities. He's not afraid to tackle those subjects. He's even using quotes, uh, as we'll get to in a second. I mean, he literally ends this film with a very powerful juxtaposition of two quotes that kind of serve as as this bookend to the tale and sort of lay out the moral Mm -hmm. of the story at the very end and leave you walking away from the film trying to digest it all and understand where you where you stand in that moral universe but was spike actually born in new york Uh, no actually he was born in atlanta georgia uh in 1957 but he did move to brooklyn as a boy now like scorsese he went to NYU and got an MFA at the Tisch School of Art. And also, just like Marty, he burst into the indie movie scene. You know, he got his start making these very small, low-budget, passionate works that were highly acclaimed at the time, such as uh, She's Gotta Have It, mm-hmm. which was set in Fort Greene. And, and that's where his production company, 40 Acres and Emile Filmworks, um, that's where it's located. His second movie was called School Days, and that was set in Atlanta, where he was born, and based on his college years at Morehouse. So Do the Right Thing is his third movie. Did you say he was born in 57? 1957, yes. So when this movie came out in 1989, he was 32 years old, and, you know, he does play a leading role in this. I would have thought he was a little younger. I think he plays a younger character. I would almost say that in this movie, he has a physicality that's very, like, skinny. He's very skinny in this. He almost is like, he's like someone that's like 21. Yeah. But no, he's no. he's in his early 30s. Yeah. And briefly then, before we jump into the film, how did the how did the movie do when it came out? The box office? Yes. What, give, the us the, club? <laughs> give us the box office report. Well, in the case of this movie, the box office is actually less important than than the immediate reception and the cultural impact of the movie. Uh, it, it did play at the Cannes Film Festival, and it had good, really great success for a small release. It was it debuted at, in 350 theaters, okay? It was the 47th highest grossing film of the year. Hmm. Uh, eventually, it made $27.5 million, or about $57 million today, which is good for a movie of this incendiary nature that was made for six million dollars yeah the biggest movies of the of that year just to put yourself in that mindset um batman indiana jones and the last crusade Mm. lethal weapon 2 this was also the year of jill magnolia's 
So it did respectably at the at the box office in terms of the Oscars then for 1990. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the the winner of Best Picture was I believe Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah, that should just tell you all you need to know about Hollywood. That Driving Miss Daisy, a somewhat more heartwarming look at interracial relations. And perhaps more problematic today when we watch it. <laughs> yeah, that, that I'm sorry, and uh, that was dripping with irony. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it does have, you know, Morgan Freeman, Jessica Tandy won the Oscar. But uh, Do the Right Thing was nominated in two categories, which is probably scandalous considering all the great performances. But it was for screenplay, and then Danny Aiello... Mm-hmm. Um, who plays Sal in the movie, was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Uh, two years, of course, after uh, an impressive performance in the movie Moonstruck, which we've talked about. <laughs> this movie was really controversial. It's considered one of the most controversial films in Hollywood history, uh, just because it just hit like this bolt of lightning. And it was definitely like an indictment on systemic racism and on police brutality. And as we will talk about at the end of the show, it's even dedicated to several people who died of police brutality and racial violence. And even some of the the decisions that Lee made in terms of the plot were controversial, um, as we will talk about as well. By the way, I think it should be noted, because we're not going to talk about this much here, but I did read one very interesting opinion piece by the columnist Ellen Goodman, that points out the inferior treatment of women mm-hmm. in the film. I was actually kind of surprised to, that felt like a column that I could have read last month. <laughs> and it, I mean, it was an, a unique insight because it's, it's just another, just always to remember, you can always think about a movie in a million different facets, especially when it's something as, as complex and well-drawn as Do the Right Thing. Uh, it is true that most of the characters we will meet on the block are men. Most of the major roles are held by men. Uh, so, Tom, I think on that note, let's go ahead and meet some of them, shall we? Okay, well, let's open up this film. Actually, it opens with a woman. It actually starts with saxophone music uh, that's playing a kind of spiritual, but then it cuts to the character of Tina, played by Rosie Perez who is dancing to incredible hip-hop. It seems that she's on the sidewalk. She's in a, you know, it's a soundstage someplace, but you see Mm -hmm. brownstones behind her. Before the rap started, we also heard some, some saxophone. The score, I just wanted to mention, the actual score, not the not the rap music, not the Public Enemy stuff, but the mm-hmm. score, the more instrumental stuff, was composed by Spike Lee's father, Bill Lee. Oh, wow. Who was an mm-hmm. accomplished bassist. And it's there, there are some really beautiful sections. That, that score sounds a little bit like Aaron Copeland at times, don't you think? Oh, Americana. It's really beautiful. By the way, Rosie Perez, got, just got to say, I love her. She's a Brooklyn lady. She was born in Bushwick. She's a famous... I mean, she's famous for dancing. She danced on Soul Train. She was a choreographer. But go on to be a very successful actress and activist, Tom. She even appeared uh, with Andrew Cuomo during one of his COVID-era press conferences, which was a nice thing to see. So anyway, so she starts the movie off with a bang. And the titles appear over her. You know, the, the credits appear at the beginning in some really great like late 80s fluorescent coloring. I mean, I just had to point that out because it does, it really takes me to the late 80s. You know, just those kinds of hot pinks and purples. It's it's pretty great. And the colors of the film are very specific too because it's supposed to be kind of the same intensity as the heat of the summer. Right. And I should me- mention really quickly that some of the costumes that will kind of apply some of that, those sort of hot colors, um, were designed by Ruth Carter, who was a longtime costume designer for Spike Lee and would herself win an Oscar for the movie Black Panther just a couple years ago. But the color scheme here is lots of like washes of, of, of oranges and reds. It just feels kind of hot. And you can hear airplanes and traffic. You know, you just hear noise. And the public enemy song, Fight the Power, which is a song that is the underlying message and score to this entire film. Fight the power! Fight 
And that song makes its debut in this film because it wasn't released uh, by Public Enemy on an album until the next year. Yeah. So, which I think is is interesting. For some reason, I I, I imagine that song kind of always being in the 80s, but it makes its uh, most prominent debut here in the movie Do the Right Thing. And, of course, makes a debut from the radio station on the block. (laughs) Uh, They have their own little radio station, Love FM 108. And who plays the DJ? Mr. Senior Love Daddy is played by Samuel L. Jackson, um, who is working a 12-hour shift, waking up his listeners at 8 o'clock in the morning. He's the heart of bed as the radio says. And today, he has a forecast. It is hot. He, he, he tells people from his street-level uh, studio there in, in bed on the block. Um, and he also we also find out, he tells us there's a water shortage. So, like, that is... That's really a heck of a news, you know, to wake up to in the morning. It's going to be a hot, sticky, yes. messy day, and there's a water shortage. You know, and I think in just setting this movie in summertime, it's this is Lee tuning into the idea of summer being a moment of incitement, mm-hmm. right? Where things get so hot that they burst, mm-hmm. which has been, of course, a common theme in New York City. Things often go haywire, uh, in, in the summer in New York City. For instance, let's just start with the Revolutionary War <laughs> and yeah. from, from my show of tearing down the statue of King George from a couple episodes ago. That was in the summer. The Civil War draft riots um, were in the summer. The, the blackout of 1977, the Harlem riots of 1964. Um, there were the race riots already in the red summer of 1919. Stonewall, obviously, took place in the summer in, in late June of 1969. Even the silent parade, um, which was a reaction, of course, to racial violence in America and was a, and was a peaceful protest, but that was in response to chaos in America, and that also took place in July. But things can go haywire during the summer. Mm-hmm. Things melt down. Tensions simmer. You know, summer's when it happens. So then we, um, we meet our main character. Yeah, like any good opera... In the opening scene here, then, we kind of, like, take a stroll up the block and meet people in very quick shots. We see the mayor, Ossie Davis, listening to the radio, but looking out through his broken blinds. So we see that this this character, the mayor, is experiencing hard times. Uh, we see Smiley next, who's a young man who's uh, mentally impaired, who's standing in front of a Baptist church with the holding on to a photo of Malcolm X shaking hands with Martin Luther King Jr. And then we meet Mookie, who is up in his apartment counting money. He's in a darkened apartment because, of course, it's really hot outside. And he's sitting next to his sister, Jade, who was actually sleeping or trying to sleep, but he's kind of har- harassing her uh, in a jokey way. And Jade is played by Joey Lee, Spike's actual sister. And she was actually in many of his early films, so there's already kind of a chemistry there, because they grew up with each other. Yeah, they really act like brother and sister. <laughs> then we pull outside, and we see the the character of Sal pulling up to his Italian pizzeria on the corner in a white, you know, 1970s Buick uh, with his two sons, Pino and Vito. They, they hop out. Uh, he he mutters about, oh, on uh, all days, this is so hot and the AC is broken and the repairman won't come to fix it because it's too dangerous in the neighborhood. Uh, the boys are muttering how they hate the neighborhood. They hate coming to work here. It's like a sickness. I want to kill somebody today. By the way, Sal is, of course, played by Danny Aiello. And Pino is played by the great American actor John Turturro. Um, in one of his early roles, and just, you know, just an actor who would go on to just some um, believable stuff and has, I think, without a doubt, one of the more difficult roles in this movie. Well, he plays, yeah, an angry, racist young man. Um, Then we see Mookie then heading out the door. He's sort of saying hi to everybody on the street who he passes, but he stops to greet an elderly woman, the the character mother-sister, who is, she's also sort of the, the, the moral compass of the block. 
who who is looking out over the block from her perch up on the second floor, we realize that she really is kind of the the moral authority, perhaps the, another mayor of the block. Yeah, she seems otherworldly. By the way, Mookie, we should just say, is wearing his Dodgers 42 uh, jersey, which is, of course, a reference to Jackie Robinson. Yes. And Mother Sister, we should mention, is played by Ruby D. Yeah, so Ozzie Davis and Ruby D were a real-life married couple, have been working in Hollywood for many, many decades. They're, I guess, the... the in a way, they're, they're kind of like the special guest stars of the movie. They would get that credit. And they also have this connection to uh, the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. So, And I think that like because they're so recognizable for those people going into this movie, I think that that is on purpose, placing them there in the movie. And they're, and they're kind of comforting characters as well. I mean, she has this sort of like untouchable quality to her. And he plays, you know, this fellow who's fallen on hard times. Uh, the the mayor who can't really seem to hold it together. He's basically drunk all the time, as we'll find out. Um, in fact, in this in this first scene, the boys at the pizzeria, the young men Pino and Vito, are arguing over who's really going to clean up the sidewalk. It's in fact the mayor who shows up and asks if he can sweep the sidewalk, if he can do any work uh, to get a couple of bucks so that he can go buy a beer at the grocery across the street. And so we see a lot of things here. We see like Sal, the owner of the pizzeria, give him, give the mayor a couple bucks to keep the sidewalk clean. And in doing so, also kind of, you know, facilitate his drinking. But we're seeing complicated dynamics already in this opening scene. Uh, by the way, he goes across the street to the other kind of major set piece in this movie, which is the deli owned by a Korean couple. We see a kind of chippy interaction between the mayor and the owners. But I do want to say that he's there to get his Miller Life, Miller High Life, which mm-hmm. they don't have. But if you'll notice, when he opens the freezer, the beer at the very front is from Brooklyn Brewery, which is a very nice touch because they had just gone into business the year that this movie was filmed, 1988. Oh, great detail, Greg. Uh, but we also we skipped over a stoop scene that took place. There's a group hanging out on the stoop. Uh, what three three guys and a young woman named Ella. They're just kind of chilling out when another character, Radio Rahim, saunters up, blasting music out of a boombox, and really kind of gets like gets sort of laughed away. I mean, this introduces a dynamic about like you know my box is bigger than your box. My box is louder than your box. This boombox is very, very loud, but at the same time, what's very interesting is this quartet of teens who pop in and out of the movie. They're almost like a... A Greek chorus. Yeah, they're almost, yeah, they're almost like a Greek chorus, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of elements of this film that are very much like a Greek tragedy. They basically kind of like speak back at Radio Rahim and other characters. I mean, they're just... They're, they're not having anyone Mm-mm. throughout most of the movie. We then pop inside another apartment, Tina's apartment. So we see Rosie Perez again, uh, now inside her apartment with uh, the character Carmen, her mother. And she establishes that she'd like her mother to babysit her son, Hector, this evening. So she wants to get out and do something, but her mother's not having it. But I just want to mention, I loved the interior we see here. It's yellow walls. Um, sort of mint green cupboards and, and window frames. The security grate, you know, is pushed locked across the window um, out to the fire escape. I mean, you know, you know that kitchen. I think that was my <laughs> kitchen, actually, on the Lower East Side. It, it looks exactly like it. And she's walking through her apartment screaming at her mom as she picks up little Hector. And she says, everybody makes me sick. Your father is a bum, she says to her son. So we're wondering, hmm. Who's, who's, who's Hector's the, who's father? The father? Mm-hmm. Hmm, exactly. Now, I mentioned that the teenagers were sort of a Greek chorus. Well, this movie yeah. also has its muses, I would say. The, the, the three older African-American gentlemen who are just sitting outside against a very vivid red wall. I would say this is one of the defining images from the movie. Those three men, ML, Coconut Sid, and Sweet Dick Willie are basically they come in and out of the story as observers. They're kind of watchers, observers of what's going on. Um, they don't actually interact that much with the with the story. 
for the most part, they, they pass the entire day sitting out here. It's almost like it's their job. They sit here and they, they offer commentary on the block that passes by. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Now, we then head inside the pizzeria for really like the first big piece of drama if you will, big first, the first big slice of drama. Buggin' Out, another character who we meet, is not happy with his slice. He looks at it, Sal plops it down, and he says, there's not enough cheese. And Sal is in heaven and says, oh, well, that's two bucks extra. He takes his seat, sits down in a, in a booth, and looks up at the wall above him and says, wall of fame. And he looks, and it's a black, it's just a spread of black and white photos, all Italian-Americans, all white, looking down at him in the pizzeria. And he looks, he said, what, what, he sees like what, Joe DiMaggio, Frank Sinatra. Liza Minnelli's there. Liza's even there. And he yells to his friend Mookie, who we should say Mookie at this point, had, we've seen him walk in his jersey down the block to work at the pizzeria. He's, a, he's the pizza delivery guy. So he looks up at Mook and says, hey, yo, Mook, why aren't there any brothers on the wall? Mook says, ask Sal. Sal says, you want brothers on the wall? Go get your own place. You can put your brothers and uncles, nieces and nephews. He's putting Italian-Americans on the wall because that's his heritage. And then Buggin' Out retorts with one of the great lines. He says, yeah, but I, 
I eat here all the time and I've never seen any Italian Americans in here. I've only seen black folks here. So since we do spend much money here, we do have some say. All right. I have, so I have two things to say about um, that scene. First of all, Bugging Out, it's my favorite character, played by the incredible Giancarlo Esposito, who I think people might better know as one of the great villains from Breaking Bad TV show. He is just like this incredible actor. It's just so fun to see him in this role because he's crazy looking. (laughs) You know, I mean, he's got these crazy glasses and amazing haircut. Just full of energy. But then secondly, um, let's just ask theoretically, does he have a point? Does he have a point, Tom? Should should Sal's have had pictures of African-Americans on his wall? Wait, you want me to like resolve an issue that the the country was embroiled in for for decades? I mean, like, should there is there a public is there a public requirement on private property to represent everybody? I mean, like, do, do I think he has a moral right? Of course. Is there a legal right? And of course not. I mean, you know, this is this is the crux of the movie. Right. Well, I would say that if Sal wanted to reflect and draw in more customers and knowing that the neighborhood is more African-American, that he might want to do that is what I is what I'm saying. So so what we're seeing is a decision that he could make and he's not. You know, they're going to make it very obvious that the neighborhood has changed over the course of the this establishment's life. Yeah. So it is interesting because because Sal is a, is a bit of an interesting, conflicted character, right? But I think that you already see, and even in the makeup of this establishment itself, that it's holding on to something that's no longer really there. And I just that, that undercurrent like continues to the movie, but is exposed right here by bugging out. Yeah. It's this one kind of perfect moment where the customers are calling out for this kind of change and representation. And Sal, the guy they give all their money to, you know, he has his own set of issues and and is stubborn. And he's got his own sadness of, losing some sense of his own family's history or something mm-hmm. it losing also the fact he looks at his sons he realizes they don't want to be there they don't want to work there they hate being there he actually loves it in a deeper kind of way so he's a conflicted character mm-hmm. and and then he's really conflicted because he grabs his baseball bat and threatens to beat bugging out over the head if he's like causing trouble Tension immediately there flares up. It's kind of put out. You know, the fire's sort of put out. Um, but but Bugging Out is kicked out of the pizzeria. On his way out, he yells, Boycott Sal's. We see he's going to start organizing some kind of a boycott. Mookie is annoyed because he talks to his friend Bugging Out on, out on the street and says, What are you trying to do? Are you trying to get me fired from my job? Like, I, I need this place to be open. Don't boycott it. Just don't even come back here. So there's all this simmering tension. Mookie gets a, a pizza t- to deliver. He and walks out of the pizzeria, passes by the mayor who's sitting on a stoop. And uh, the mayor forces Mookie to stop and listen to him. And he says, listen to me, always do the right thing. And Mookie's like, do the right thing. That's it. I got it. I'm gone. And he takes off. And it's only getting hotter. Everybody's starting to like sweat beads. But you're like, okay, do the right thing. Where is Spike Lee going with this? So now we get kind of a fun heat montage. We see some newspapers that are like blazing on their headlines about the heat. The Daily News, Helter Swelter. They open up a fire hydrant that's drenching the street. People are having a good time. A lot of people aren't having a good time, including this one dude who drives through in this ridiculous car (laughs) who's like, don't get my car wet. It's an antique. Right. Like he decides he's going down the block, the only block where they're having like a full on fire hydrant block party. Right. All ages, all ages are getting dunked and squirted and hosed down. They're having a blast. And he decides to come through with his antique convertible with the top down. And so even again, now we have this like white dude in an antique car who says to them, you better not get a drop on this antique car when I drive through. You know 
how this is going to end. <laughs> well, pretty much the car is drenched. As is he. But then I guess we we introduce ourselves to some of the final characters of our of our story here, and that is the the two NYPD police officers yes. who come by, and they go up to the man and they're like, "Well, do you wish to file an, a complaint? What are these people's names?" And the guy who's with the drenched car, he doesn't know. He's like, "Mo and Joe, right? Mo and Joe, what? Mo and Joe Black? It's painful." <laughs> what, well, the police turn off the fire hydrant. They basically tell him to to get back in. If he knows what's best for him, get in his car and drive away. So it's also kind of confusing because you're like, oh, okay. well, then the police are somewhat sympathetic. They're not going to do anything toward the residents of the street. We have another quick scene of Rahim sort of like further developing his character, which he's now challenging a group of Puerto Rican teens who are on the street listening to the radio and he outplays them. But they just kind of, instead of creating an altercation, they step back and say, okay, all right, you won. But then he walks away. He walks away a winner. I mean, he he has just won this kind of boombox battle. By the way, all these people are sitting around in the summer I, I couldn't help but sort of like wonder how this would look different if it had been shot today, 30 years later. Did you notice that nobody, you never saw a bottle of water? People were not like slurping down water out of bottles. Oh, yeah. There was like nothing, really. Right. No iced coffees, you know, no like, <laughs> well, yes. no Arizona iced teas. I mean, it was like there was just no, there's no refreshment to cool people down for these first, you know, for this first part of the day, it's just getting hotter and hotter. No big gulps. No big um, gulps. Bugging out, however, like pops back in here with his new white Air Jordans in kind of an amazing confrontation with a white resident um, who is stumbling by. I'm not exactly sure what was wrong with him. He just seemed to kind of be like coming back from an exhausting long bike ride with his expensive yeah. bike. And he's like walking right down the middle of the sidewalk and he kind of like bumps into bugging out and sort of skids up his new white Air Jordans um, and keeps moving up and then sits down on his stoop, which is on the same block. So we are introduced to the character of a white resident who has just bought an entire brownstone on the block. This brings up the idea of gentrification in the neighborhood, even in 1989, which is interesting. And and the scene kind of ends when bugging out and, you know, the chorus mm-hmm. of teens are like, why don't you go back to Massachusetts? And then he responds with the line, I was born in Brooklyn. <laughs> to which they all go, oh. <laughs> so next we go, we go back to the pizza parlor. Right. We, we see some tensions, of course, not only with Pino and Mookie, but there's even some disagreements between Pino and his younger brother, Vito. Next, we see Mookie on a payphone. It's kind of a close up. At first, I, I wasn't quite for sure where he was, but he is in the pizza parlor and he is talking to Tina. And what do they talk about? They're having a lover's conversation. He hasn't seen her. They're trying to figure out if they're going to see each other. Finally, they hang up. We realize, I mean, they're not just on any payphone. They're actually on the pizzeria's phone. So the second mm-hmm. that he hangs up, the phone rings with an order. The, the sons are like, do you see? Like, Mookie is like sitting here. We're paying him to, to, to talk on the phone and block orders from coming in. But Mookie and Pino actually have this then amazing, like, late 80s mm-hmm. conversation about race um, and about the, about the N-word. And about how basically all of Pino's favorite celebrities, including Eddie Murphy, Prince. Magic Johnson, yeah. Are all black. It is the most incredible scene to watch today, honestly. And yet he still uses the N-word, is his point. Why is he still saying this? And he's like, well, because, you know, they're, they're not black. They're, they're, they're more than black. Let me explain myself. They're, they're not really black. I'm... I mean, they're black, but they're not really black. They're, they're more than black. It's, it's, it's different. It's different? Yeah, to me, it's, it's different. You know, deep down inside, I think you wish you were black. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Laugh if you want to. You know, your hair is kinkier than mine. What does that mean? And you know what they say about dark Italians? You know, I've been listening and reading. You've been reading now? I read. 
I've been reading about your leaders. Reverend Al, Mr. Do, Sharp Tone, Jesse. Keep hope alive. And uh, even uh, the other guy, what's his name? Uh, Farrakhan. Farrakhan. Uh, Minister Farrakhan. Right, sorry. Minister Farrakhan. Anyway, Minister Farrakhan always talks about the so-called day when, when the black man will rise. We will one day, what does he say? We will one day rule the earth as we did in, in our glorious past? Yeah, that's right. What past you talking about? What, what did I miss? We started civilization. Man, keep dreaming, man. Then you woke up. But he's also introducing this, you know, the N-word, a discussion about the N-word, which then leads, we cut from this this conversation to an incredible montage of people, of many of the main characters, just letting loose in a what could only be described as a racial spew fest. I mean, it's one of these scenes that could have been left on the cutting room floor because it's really just performance art in a way. Yeah. But it just what it what it demonstrates, with the exception of the gentrifier, um, whose ethnic background we do not know, that every character that we've met fits into one of these ethnic or racial groups. And then in this segment, all of them are kind of assailed in these uh, tiny little monologues just full of racial epithets. Mookie takes on Italians. Vito takes on African-Americans. The police officers take on Puerto Ricans. The Korean grocer takes on Jews. Everybody is just screaming about everybody else. Then this goes, like, the kind of power from this, if you're kind of disturbed watching it, you know, Lee uses that because then you you go into another scene with Rahim as he is having a conversation with Mookie explaining these two curious things that he is wearing on his hand, these brass knuckles. Yes. One, on one hand, uh, I think it's on his right, he has love, and on the left, he has hate spelled out and he launches into kind of a moment of poetry you know that's maybe actually sort of under underscoring or establishing the the morality of this whole movie the story about man you know being in a constant state of tension a struggle between love and hate um meanwhile he's got you know fight the power blasting from his radio and he heads with his boombox then into sal's and demands two slices of pizza but sal is not having it He's like, no music, no rap, but he does shut shut it off for him. Yes. Right? And then when he, even when he asks for extra cheese, he's like, well, that, that'll cost you an extra $2. So what's interesting about Raheem in this scene is to com- contrast him with Smiley, nonviolent action versus violent action. Mm-hmm. That's sort of what these brass mm-hmm. knuckles represents. Then you also have Smiley with his images of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, which are you know, those two figures are established in this movie as well as right. being this, those two sides of the coin also. And there's that tension between those two again. And here's Raheem in the pizzeria with tension building. And tension has been building everywhere in this film. And now he's standing there asking for something. There's another tense moment with his music loud and a demand by this authoritative figure, Sal, to mm-hmm. shut it down. You wonder if it's going to first but he seems to like take the nonviolent route now later at sal's pizza we have uh, another complaint fest from pino who hates it he wants to move and he's trying to convince his father to move like why are you in this neighborhood but then sal returns with what one could perceive as being maybe kind of a sweet gesture that he feels very connected to this neighborhood. He's been here. He's worked here for 25 years. You know, he's fed. He's watched all these kids get old. They all grew up eating his pizza. But Pino is like, we should just stay in Bensonhurst and they should just stay here. Yeah, we should open a pizzeria in Bensonhurst. And... Sal goes through this explanation of why he's proud of what he's built over 25 years and says at the end, you know, Sal's famous pizzeria is here to st- is here to stay. And that's the way it is. And he's also looking at his son with something like disappointment. He, he recognizes the racism in his son, wonders. He says, why are you so angry? 
at that moment, Smiley shows up trying to sell, you know, through the window, trying to sell them one of these photos of Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. And Pino just loses it. He just bursts out onto him, you know, basically screams at him, chases him off, is incredibly disrespectful, which is noticed by many other people on the block, by the way. Sal goes out, tries to, like, make nice, tries to offer him some money to buy one of his pictures, tries to, like, you know, stamp out the fire, if you will, but it seems to already be too late. People people need some kind of a break, and fortunately, that arrives in the form of shaved ice. A shaved ice vendor, you know, hits the block and the children run out to him and they're 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 asking for the you know a cherry, a coconut, whatever. When all of a sudden you hear the familiar tune, the lilting melody of, of the Mr. Softy truck, the kids go running for the ice cream truck, including a little boy named Little Eddie, who runs right out in front of a in front of a car, is nearly hit and would have been run over had the mayor not jumped in and shoved him to the ground and pushed him out of the way of the oncoming car. And that scene was very dramatic. I could not... I was so stunned by the fact that the Mr. Softy theme song and truck look exactly yeah. like, they, and like they do, and they sound exactly like they do right now. So that's like a constant. As do um, the, the city's shaved ice vendors, the ones who still cart around. Same thing. Although I have a feeling that, that that contrast is meant to say that the shaved ice vendors are more of a dying breed and are yeah. being taken over by this chain that's like driving through the, the neighborhood offering popsicles. True. There's also something creepy happening inside Sal's at this point because we, oh, cut, yeah. <laughs> we cut to a booth where Sal is like, all I can say, making eyes at Jade, Mookie's sister. Um, who is what thirty years younger than him? Yeah, possibly I mean, still a teenager. I mean, she's a ray of light in this movie. So you know the way that she's sort of presented by her brother, the director. But this is especially weird. I mean, it could be very an, an innocent exchange. Maybe he's looking at her very fatherly, but Mookie does not think so. Well, he says something about like about how her eyes are really popping out and how she needs to come yeah. around more often. And it's it's really unsettling. I mean, I was unsettled watching it. I don't know how you felt. I think we are kind of uh, directed on how we should feel because then Mookie takes his sister out, right? And they're outside somewhere on the street and they have a little conversation. Mm-hmm about what just happened inside and that she should never come around here again, but in front of an extraordinary piece of graffiti that's on the wall. And that says, Tawana told the truth. And this is in reference to a case from 1987 involving the brutal rape and attack of a teenager named Tawana Brawley. And she was dragged to the press who, you know, questioned her motivations. And it's a very tragic story. And so, you know, keep in mind that is like a mere prop on the background of this Mm -hmm. particular scene. So I think it's so, especially if you're in the late 80s and and the story is still very fresh to you um, because it, you know, it made national news. Mm -hmm. So just to keep that that in mind that that is sort of like what's happening in the background during what seems to be a very innocuous conversation between brother and sister. And brother, meanwhile, is blowing off a little steam of his own because he goes in for his for for delivery, quote unquote, that takes him to the apartment of his girlfriend, Tina. We see that she's been waiting for him forever. We find out a lot of things. We find out that Hector is Mookie's son and that Tina's mom hates Mookie. There is a love scene, a very famous love scene. Uh, I, yeah, I'm not sure I would call it a love scene. I'm not sure what I would call it. We're gonna skip past it because uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm not sure this scene aged very well. But anyway, <laughs> Mookie though is like the world's worst delivery guy. I mean, like <laughs> oh, well, that is that is for sure. <laughs> he's having like complete, you know, romantic trysts during you know during his delivery. I mean, either that or he's brilliant. I mean, he's got the best job in the world. Mm-hmm. Well, back at Sal's, uh, who should have stopped in, but two police officers that we've seen in the movie. And they're, you know, 
having small talk, asking him how long he's going to stay in the neighborhood. Um, there's some jokes about gentrification. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Sal says, oh, I'm going to stick around for 50 years and then I'm going into the real estate business. They laugh and say, yeah, right, because so many people want to move here. And they, they even joke about condos, right? <laughs> yeah, they're, they're like, well, maybe uh, you can turn the place into a condo called Trump's Pizza or Trump's Plaza. Keep in mind, Trump was known as a, as a re- successful real estate mogul in the late uh, 1980s. And so that's what that reference was um, related to. I kind of wish that it had just become, you know, he had just gone into pizza. He could have just had Mr. Trump's Pizza. It would have gone bankrupt. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, okay. uh, And then actually there's a very pivotal scene before kind of our third act here. And that is Buggin' Out meets up with Raheem. They haven't actually, you know, really been together. These two kind of like separate forces throughout the movie. And essentially Buggin' Out convinces Raheem to join his cause for boycotting Sal's. Because, you know, Raheem has a beef with Sal. So we now have those two mm-hmm. going back to cells. Going back with Smiley as well. And Oh, Smiley Sal- is now involved. Yes, that's yes. right. And and by this point, Sal's has closed for the day. Sal is about to just count the money and divvy it up because as we've also found out, Mookie is owed $250 a week. Sounds like he's he hasn't been paid for last week as well. So money is going to be divvied up. But Sal has like is having this weird is having this kind of moment of like vulnerability, I guess. He turns to his family and to Mookie and it's like, We had a great day. I'm gonna rename the place Sal and Sons famous pizzeria. You guys are gonna take it over one day. Mookie, there'll always be a place for you. You've been like a son to me. Which is kind of sweet and also must be some kind of a slap <laughs> towards Pino. Yeah. And it also feels like foreshadowing Um, as some kids are like clamoring to get in for one last slice he looks at them and says let them in they love my pizza right so they come in they're taking a seat in a booth they're waiting to be served when who should walk in but radio raheem and bugging out and smiley they burst in blasting fight the power again and they demand we want black people up on that wall of fame Yes, they're screaming about the Wall of Fame. They're doing it here at closing time. And here is what is absolutely just, it's shocking because we just saw Sal being this kind of softy here, right? And the camera goes for a tight close-up of Sal's face and he screams, turn off that music. And instead, Raheem turns it up. Sal then explodes with a racist epithet aimed at him, then... Mookie's begging him to just back down at this point because he's just getting more incensed and enraged that he takes the bat and he destroys the boombox. He starts to smash the boombox. The the music is immediately silenced. All you hear is the smash, smash, smash of a baseball bat destroying this boombox that has been so revered throughout this entire movie. I mean, it's been his identity, and it's also been, you know, in a way, like, it's Raheem's confidence is this is this music and is this boombox. And so it's just been destroyed by Sal. Raheem then pulls Sal across the bar, across the counter, onto the floor, and an all-out brawl ensues. People smacking each other, choking each other, spills out onto the sidewalk, I don't know if you noticed at that point, the, the, as the fight is underway out on the sidewalk around the corner on the, the, the mural that's painted on the side of the, the pizzeria mm-hmm. at this point, were the words maximum performance for audio devices. As they're fighting, we should note that all the characters, everybody, here we are at the end of the movie, it's the climax, everybody from the beginning of the film, all the characters we've met, everybody reappears as Radio Rahim, we see him choking Sal on the sidewalk. The police arrive, however, pull everyone apart and start smacking people with their with their, their sticks and put Radio Rahim in a chokehold with their batons, lifting him off the ground. And there's one really creepy shot 
of just his legs dangling in the shot as we see that he's he's being choked and held up in the air, incapable of breathing. Rahim collapses to the ground. The cops have killed him. And they even kick his body. And before they kind of realize what they've done. Yeah, they're kicking Tom, him and telling him to get up. Get up. Tom, I, I read the script, the original typed script. Wow. That I found um, online for, for this film. And in the original script, at this part, it actually says, quote, the infamous Michael Stewart chokehold is what's happening with Rahim. Now, Michael Stewart was a man who was severely injured by a police officer on September 15th, 1983, and then later died after being in a coma. And then in 85, the officers that were involved in that case were all acquitted by an all-white jury. And then in 1990, okay, so following the release of this movie, the family of Michael Stewart settled a civil suit out of court Although the police continued to state that they were not to blame for the death of Michael Stewart. But this man died in a chokehold. Mm. And this movie, it actually is, it, it pulls from a lot of incidents, a couple which we'll mention at the end of the show here. It draws from that historical experience, like in a way that is so shocking that it's almost you could hold them up to each other at this point and look at them and compare them and find the similarities. Yeah, and one of the neighbors yells out, he died because of a radio. So the police drive away with him. They put him in the car and then they drive away. Smiley is is in disarray. He's weeping. He's having a crisis of his own. He shouts, one of the cops was black. In one of the most pivotal actions of the whole movie, Mookie then grabs a trash can, runs up to the pizzeria, and throws it through Sal's window. Mookie has basically taken the first step. He's He's been the one who has smashed the window and let the whole neighborhood into his place of employment, former place of employment. The neighborhood rushes in and starts looting and destroying Sal's and everything it represents. Smiley enters as well, and lights a fire. Yes, it's Smiley that actually like begins the fire here at Sal's. And then as we watch, you know, the place goes up in flames as people are fighting and screaming and yelling in the street. Then there is a moment where we think that that violence might escalate or rather cross the street over to the deli and the the owners of that deli are trying to protect his place and and he's screaming i'm not white he's trying to talk the the crowd out of it because this is there's this moment where it's it just seems likely but instead the police arrive again with fire trucks they turn their hoses onto sal's and then with very little warning turn their hoses onto the neighbors creating complete chaos in the streets injuring people, of course, with the with the full blast of the hoses. It's interesting because this is the second time that we've actually seen those hydrants at work mm-hmm. in the same day. You know, in the, in the heat of the day, they were they were being used to cool down the streets and, and they were controlled by the residents who were jubilant in the water. And now here we see them again under the control of the authorities who are turning them against those very same residents. These hydrants were a a non-aggressive force, Mm -hmm. you know, that people were kind of playing with and having fun. And then now in this movie, it's being turned against them um, in this violent act. So, you know, we have this wild jazz playing. We get an inside view of the burning restaurant. You see pizza slices everywhere, which I, I thought was a odd detail, slightly weird. And then, of course, we see Smiley who comes in and he pins up a picture of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, pins it up there in the restaurant. Onto the Wall of Fame. The next morning, we see that Mookie is waking up in bed with Tina and Hector. He's off to demand his back pay. He's owed two weeks. We see the mayor waking up saying good morning to mother-sister. He hopes that the the block is still standing. So so their sort of romantic dance Mm -hmm. has paid off after this chaotic day. 
And we get to the pizzeria, and Sal is still sitting outside on the stoop in front of his burned-out business. Well, I would say, I mean, Mookie's got, you know, he's got some real brio here (laughs) to come (laughs) and ask for his money, which is kind of amazing. I think it just says a lot about... uh, of that character it also brings you back to the very beginning of the movie you know when he's counting cash and he needs his money so it really goes back to just that very very simple objective from the beginning of the film so they have um at first an argument right i mean mm-hmm. sal does pull out some money and starts throwing it at him but then he's thrown too much money and mookie gives some of it back it's like they're kind of arriving at this uneasy peace between the two of them It's not really cordial. Sal still can't believe that Mookie basically threw the first, you know, trash can through the window. Mookie thinks, well, you're going to get paid. You've got insurance on this. It's going to pay you back. Sal can't believe that Mookie doesn't understand it's more than money. He's saying, you know, I built this place with my own hands over 25 years. So he's wondering where he fits in, like what it means to him, what it means to his own identity. Mookie's wondering what it means if if he's going to get paid. He needs money, too. And then we hear the DJ. We hear our narrator. Mm -hmm. The DJ announced that the mayor has issued a statement that property must not be destroyed by anyone. It's a blue ribbon panel. (laughs) Right. And he plans to visit their block later today. Uh, and he says maybe the mayor should hook up with uh, New York's mayor, with his honor. Maybe, Maybe his honor could buy the mayor a beer. (laughs) on that note our 24 hours on this block are at an end now before we get to the credit sequence which Mm -hmm. is very powerful i just want to mention that yesterday i went uh to bedsty and went to the street where this was filmed today it's actually it's it's officially called do the right thing way and that is located on Stuyvesant Street between Lexington Avenue and Quincy Street, just a few blocks east of Herbert Von King Park. But most of the brownstones are still there. All, almost all of the brownstones, as far as I could tell, are still are still present. So if you want to take some screenshots and hold them up while you're walking, you'll find them. The two most notable buildings are not there because they were they were built as sets. One of them is, of course, Sal's Pizzeria, which wouldn't be there anyway because they burned it down. But then the deli is also no longer there. However, they're both vacant lots. And in those vacant, vacant lots, they both have murals. And the one where the deli used to be is even a do-the-right-thing mural, which is a great detail and a great reminder of this movie's impact. Now, can we t- let's just talk finally about the credits. So the, so the movie fades out, and then we're met again by Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. We have two of their most famous quotes, um, Martin Luther King's, which begins, violence as a way of achieving racial justice is both impractical and immoral. It goes on from there. But Malcolm X's, which concludes, I don't even call it violence when it's self-defense. I call it intelligence. And... As we've said before, so here we have these two conflicting, though coexisting philosophies, mm-hmm. and these two men we've seen standing next to each other in this photograph that's been finally pinned to the wall of fame in the pizzeria as it's burning. It's a powerful statement. And the last image before we get to you know the names, the cr- the credits of the movie, is that we find that the movie is dedicated to a, s- a small list of people. These are people who have died due to police brutality or some kind of racial violence, and they include Michael Stewart, who we mentioned earlier, Eleanor Bumpers, who was an elderly woman who was shot and killed by the police on October twenty ninth, nineteen eighty four. The movie is also dedicated to Michael Griffith, who died in December 20th, 1986, who was killed in an incident in Howard Beach after being chased by a white mob. The movie is dedicated to Edmund Perry, who was shot by a plainclothes officer on June 12th, 1985. The movie is 
also dedicated to Arthur Miller Jr., um, who died in 1978 and was also killed by a chokehold. And I wanted to quote specifically from The Village Voice to tell a little of Miller's story. Quote, Arthur Miller's death at the hands of the New York City police sparked an intense debate about the use of the controversial police chokehold in 1978. At the time of the incident that led to his death, Arthur Miller was a popular businessman who was not charged with committing a crime. The chokehold was applied to him after he argued with several police officers over construction debris being loaded into a vehicle. Miller, who was the owner of a construction company, was a husband and father of six who had an outstanding reputation in the community. And finally, there's one more name on this list, and it is a woman named Yvonne Smallwood, and she died on December 9th, 1988, while in police custody. And what's interesting with including her name is that the filming of Do the Right Thing was from July 1988 to September of 1988. So she was added to this list after filming was done. So, you know, this this movie is dedicated to people who have lost their lives in the course of 10 years, right? Uh, mm-hmm. 1978 and 1988. And, you know, a lot of these names would have been familiar to those people who watched the film, especially if you lived in New York City here in the 1980s. And of course, as we know, you know, had Spike Lee made this movie today, this list would have been much, much longer. That's a point that that Richard Brody also made in a piece he wrote in The New Yorker last year upon the the re-release of the film for its 30th anniversary. He wrote, quote, Three decades later, with police forces virtually militarized and with the judicial system largely granting officers impunity for killings committed on duty, the shock of the movie is that Even as many cultural and civic aspects that it represents have changed, its core drama, the killing of black Americans by police, continues unabated and largely unredressed. Again, Brody wrote that in The New Yorker a year ago. And so that was our look at the 1989 film classic, Do the Right Thing. We want to thank you again for supporting us on Patreon.com. We couldn't make our normal show, The Bowery Boys, or this, The Bowery Boys Movie Club, or The Takeout, without you and your financial support. So thank you so much. So thank you very much for listening. And we'll see you at the movies. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.